Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers, all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We want to hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom, and the aisle. Today, we are so very lucky to have Dr. Ronald Wyatt with us on Lit Health. Dr. Wyatt is Vice President and Patient Safety Officer for MCIC Vermont, a major risk retention group, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, former co-chair of the IHI Equity Advisory Board, and he now serves as faculty for the IHI Pursuing Equity Initiative. He is also a facilitator for the ACGME Equity Matters Collaborative. Prior to joining MCIC Vermont, Dr. Wyatt was formerly Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer at Cook County Health in Chicago, Illinois, the former Chief of Patient Safety and Quality for the Hamad Medical Corporation in Doha, Qatar, and he was the first Patient Safety Officer at the Joint Commission. Dr. Wyatt is a credentialed course instructor in the School of Health Professions at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and is co-course director of the Keystone Program at the Northwestern University School of Medicine Master's Degree in patient safety. He holds an honorary Doctor of Medical Sciences from the Morehouse School of Medicine and is a graduate of the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Medicine. While a resident in training at St. Louis University Group of Hospitals, he served as the first African-American chief medical resident in 1987 to 1988. He is also a board-certified internist and practiced medicine for over 20 years in St. Louis, Missouri and Huntsville, Alabama. He earned the Master's in Health Administration from the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Health Professions. To know Ron is to know that he's very busy, and we are fortunate, as I said, to have him here. Welcome, Ron. So let's jump right in. You and I have known each other for a while, I would say, I don't know, is it 10 years? Maybe not. Probably, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Approaching it, I think. Yeah. One of the things that we first talked about was a paper you had written about what happened to you just prior to medical school when you were living in Alabama. I want people to understand what we're talking about when we talk about systemic racism, because we know the language can be off-putting to some people. And I think that stories, real stories, transcend that pushback. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I will. At the time, I had been actually rejected from medical school twice. So I was working as what, called, what was called preloader for United Parcel Service in Birmingham, Alabama. And let me preface that by saying that during that time, Birmingham led the nation for mid-sized cities and policemen shooting young black men. So I would typically leave my apartment on the west side of Birmingham, that the low-rent apartment complex that literally sat adjacent to subsidized housing community. And as I turned out to go to a main crossing, I went through the traffic light and immediately 
blue police lights came on. I pulled over, and, and as it happened, I had been to a symposium at UAB that was put on by the Department of Psychology. Alvin Poussaint was one of the presenters, and so were black and white policemen in Birmingham. It was then that I first became aware of what I should do if I'm stopped by the police in Birmingham. Put your both hands on the steering wheel. Leave just enough space in the window to put your driver's license through. Don't make any sudden moves. So I pulled over, did those things. Uh, it was a summer in Birmingham. My little Toyota was unair conditioned. It was a hot, humid morning. So I did that. But later I realized that I did not roll up the passenger side window. The policeman approached and asked me, where was I going? And I said, I'm going to work. Where do you work? UPS. What do you do there? I preload the trucks. And at that point, I had this uh, odd sensation, and I slowly turned to my right. And when I turned, I saw that the other policeman had his handgun pulled. He was actually leaning through the window with his handgun pointed at my head. And I simply said, what now? And the other policeman said, we don't believe you are going to work, so we're going to follow you. So they followed me, I guess, about five miles to the UPS facility in Birmingham. And they followed me through the security checkpoint, flashed their lights, came over to my car. And again, I said how embarrassing that was for me. And the policeman came to my car and said, we will be there waiting for you in the morning. And we want to see you come to the stop sign and come to a full stop. And admittedly, I did a rolling stop at a stop sign. It's a dark street. There were no street lights. And I saw no need to come to a full stop. So I just slowly drove through that stop sign. So the impact of that still lives with me today. And, and I call it driving while looking in my rearview mirror. So to this day, and this happened in the mid-70s, whenever I meet a police car or a police car pulls up behind me when I'm driving down a street, road, highway, interstate, I, I do experience some visceral anxiety uh, about that police car in my rearview mirror or approaching me when a police car approaches me. And this actually happened to me this week. Oh. Uh, I look in the rearview mirror when that car goes by to make sure the blue lights don't come on and they don't make a U-turn and come back. So, so that is how that has impacted me from the mid-1970s, honestly, um, to now. Yeah. It's really ironic that it just, you know, you had that same reaction this past week. My follow-up question was going to be, how do you think that experience changed you? And it, obviously it, it stayed with you and for good reason. I mean, here's a young guy trying to make his, a living to put himself through medical school and um, you have to deal with that. I want you to resubmit that paper somewhere because I think it's yeah. really important. And I understand a lot of things have happened since then, but the impact on you carried forward more years than we care to count at this point is still alive and real. Well, yeah, and it really feeds into the, the topics of the day around inequity and, and disparity and structural institutional racism. It really does. And it leads to something that we need to have um, some strategies and actions around, and that is trust. So, and you might know that a little over a year ago, Kaiser Foundation published a survey that's called Undefeated. And in that, there was a measure of trust. And when you look at that, you see 
the differences between blacks, whites, and Latinx communities and how much we trust the police, the hospital, the physicians. And you'll see, especially for black people, but not far behind our Latinx communities and the low levels of trust that exist for physicians and hospitals or healthcare systems. Carry that through to a more recent survey that I think was from Commonwealth Fund or Robert Johnson Foundation, one of those, where it looked at an age difference in levels of trust. And it, what that found was that particularly younger Black people have much lower levels of trust for health and health care than older Black people. And there's some, you know, we need to know more about what that means. But I, I think just based on experiences I've had, and we've talked about there in Chicago, uh, when, when I talked to the, the barber, young barber in the community where I live there on the west side, near west side in, in Chicago, and I asked him, you know, what is it about health care that you can tell me? And thinking about trust. And, and he echoed that. And he said that the, the thing that most concerns him about health and health care was the lack of respect that, that he received when he goes in for health care. And here's a guy who, who says, I'm trying to do the right things. I'm trying to eat right. I tell my friends, you shouldn't smoke. Yeah, but then I go in for health care and I feel disrespected. And my question becomes then, how am I going to trust you if you disrespect me? And, and we're, we're trying to think through that now even. How do we address loss of trust, distrust, mistrust that didn't just happen? You know, this this is it goes back to beyond 1619. So it's not a it's not a new issue. Yeah. And I think, you know, I started out by saying that people have to try and, and wrap their head around what systemic racism really means. And those of us who understand it, you know, how do we cross that bridge with people who deny still that it it's a thing? That's a whole nother topic. And I don't know if we can cover it on this podcast. But yeah. I, what I really want to do, the trust is is something that I want to get to because of the IHI um, initiative to build trust. But, you know, let's flash forward from that young guy trying to get into medical school to you now in a successful career in medicine, leading quality and safety around the world. You've been kind of fighting this fight all along. What has been your biggest frustration with the health inequities that you've witnessed in, you know, in your leadership roles in the last decade? Probably, I would say my biggest challenges is around the levels of leadership engagement in these topics uh, and the continued efforts on my part to make the case that this needs to be addressed and how leadership, I'm including executive leadership and health and healthcare systems, as well as boards of directors that have existed in some state of denial about these problems exist, even in the face of data, both qualitative and quantitative data, that tells you there's something here happening in our system that leads to more harm and more premature mortality when you begin to stratify that by race and ethnicity and by language. And my challenge continues to be, when will leadership, and it's happening, uh, and that's that's my I suppose, hope and optimism that is beginning to happen, that leadership are, are beginning to address this. But there are things about that, as we've discussed, and we hopefully will, that keeps me awake at night. Yeah. But the biggest challenge for me is 
leadership, people who have power and authority that will step up and say, we know this is a problem. We accept that it's a problem. We know that it's a challenge, but we will now commit. We will commit to addressing it in a way we never have before. We will commit resources. We will commit people. We'll commit money to help address this in ways that will lead to sustainable change. You know, not just the, the flavor of the month, but sustainable change so that when we look back a decade from now, we will say that was a moment that became a movement that truly did lead to lasting uh, change. Yeah. Well, and and I think, you know, we, we're touching on languages so powerful. You know, this is a Lit Health podcast to talk about how the the literature and the leadership, you know, kind of set the course for the culture. Your piece uh, in the Washington Post earlier this year, the healthcare industry doesn't want to talk about this single word, racism. We have to be able to address it in the boardrooms because it's underlying everything that you're talking about if we're going to set these programs, correct? Correct. And again, that, that becomes, for me, part of the challenge is for leadership to understand, again, that this is not a check-the-box, one-off period of time. Uh, and, and already I hear from executive leaders and diversity, equity, and inclusion who are being uh, pressured by executive leadership and boards even to get results, right? So so all of a sudden you, you have people in these uncomfortable positions So we've given you resources, we've, we're giving you time, why don't you have results? And, and I was on a call with a, a, an executive clinician leader just a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, Ron, I've been at this for four months. I'm a full-time clinician. I don't have protected time, but the CEO of the health system is asking me, why don't I have results yet? So people are being asked to get results on a system of inequity, a system of disparity, a system of structural and institutional racism, when even the leadership doesn't understand how it works as a system, yet they're saying, give us some results. Uh, so I, we're at a moment where we got to think about ways, again, you know, in patient safety, I would call forcing functions. And part of forcing functions now is regulatory, it's accreditation, and it's how you will get paid in health and healthcare for the services you provide for all people or the services that you don't provide for some people. Yeah. Where is CMS and um, NQF and all the, the more governing bodies on this? Do you know? Uh, yeah. So uh, I know a little bit, not much. I'll know that, I know that, for instance, I, I sit on a CMS measurement work group. And part of that work group is the group that looks at the CMS STARS rating. And in a most recent conversation, this came up. What uh, was shared with us is that CMS is looking at inequity and disparity in ways that it never has looked at it before. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that means something that it will be robust that will come out of it. And I'll come back to that. And then I know that the uh, NCQA just a couple weeks ago announced that they now have a certification and equity track as a part of accreditation. And that is when healthcare leaders, healthcare systems leaders, and payers began to um, pay attention to the, these issues and begin to understand them. I, I know that U.S. News and World Reports for the first time this year assigned an equity rating. And I talked to a leader at a big academic health center, ironically, the week that it was um, that the, the U.S. News and World Reports rankings were released. And this person was, quite frankly, embarrassed at their ranking on U.S. News and World Reports 
when they thought they were doing better than, than they actually were. I know that LeapFrog uh, that gives grades around patient safety is looking at ways to assign grades to, to healthcare hospitals and healthcare systems on equity. So there's a lot of movement. I'm, I'm remain hopeful that this leads to a some type of, as you know, a national patient safety goal. And I speak there directly to the Joint Commission to say, if, if you know, we need regulation from CMS. We need accreditation, not just from the Joint Commission, but from DNV and all of the accreditors that are deemed as accreditation organizations to take this on, to say we need a set of standards that I would define as national patient safety goal on achieving health equity and that there be some required standards in that, while some being began to collect and validate race, ethnicity, language data, began to collect, validate, and stratify sexual orientation, gender identity data, began to demonstrate as a standard that you have put in place some type of process uh, around teaching implicit bias or to be truly transformative, began to say, how will we become anti-racist multicultural transformative healthcare system. I love it. I love it. You know, let's go back to the payer piece for a minute, because as we know, healthcare runs on dollars and we've long been around healthcare safety or patient safety leaders who said, you know, the carrot's not working. We need to use the stick. It's the penalties that'll get people to do things. And the payers are now engaged at least a little bit, right? I know we've talked about Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois and what they're doing, And you posted something on your LinkedIn, by the way, anybody who wants to follow Ron and see what he's doing, follow him on LinkedIn because he has some tremendous information that he's sharing with uh, that ecosystem. But you posted something about the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts article and some of the some of the data that was coming out of there. But I think more importantly, how is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois partnering to move equity and inclusion forward? Yes, so I think in many ways, uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield Illinois is a, a leader in this, and I'm participating as a facilitator at the uh, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education based in Chicago in what's called an Equity Matters Collaborative, and that is supported by Blue Cross and, and Blue Shield Illinois. And part of this is that many healthcare systems and hospitals in Illinois, the major ones, have teams that are beginning to learn more about the topics that we're talking about, inequity, disparity, uh, racism, allyship. We cover adverse childhood experiences and the impact of trauma and, and the impact trauma has had on inequity. And part of this also around graduate medical education is how we began to build capacity in graduate medical education, how we began to diversify leadership, diversify the trainees, how black and brown faculty are recruited and retained. What should a curriculum look like that addresses diversity, equity, and inclusion inside of graduate medical education? Uh, so there are leaders from these major healthcare systems around Illinois participating. Each one will have to have a capstone project that is focused on their institution and addressing some facet of uh, healthcare disparity and inequity, racism, and, and the topics we talked about. And that's being supported, it's being pushed, it's being advocated uh, by uh, the highest levels of leadership in Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Illinois. And I think they're really to be lauded for the effort. Will it work? Yeah, so the question is gonna always be, as we start out, will it work? And what are, what are the, there's no, you know, fairy dust, there's no, no silver bullet to making it work. 
Uh, and that's why I mean, uh, will leadership boards of, of directors, powerful people who have authority, will they commit to making it work and sustaining it to move it beyond a moment? Uh, and it's unfortunate that I have to say what I'm about to say. Once you begin to tie financial penalties to something that is going to not be undone, it begins to get attention. Once you began to say as a as a regulatory mechanism, here's what you must do. That's why I come back to CMS to say, if if addressing uh, inequity, if addressing disparity becomes what's called a condition of participation in CMS, linked back to your payment or not payment, then that gets people's attention. If when when an accreditation organization like the Joint Commission shows up on your doorstep and says, you know, we have multiple reports that there are issues in your healthcare system around disparity, inequity, and maybe even racism. And, and I'll pause for a second and say, when I was at the Joint Commission as their first ever patient safety officer, we did get reports in that, you know, this is racism. As a patient, people that worked on care teams would report to us saying there's racism happening here. And, and when I would ask the care teams, uh, primarily nurses, you know, I would say, why are you coming to the Joint Commission? And, and the answer was always the same, because we have nowhere else to go. We brought it to leadership, again, leadership, and, and no one acts on it. We've had physicians when I was at the Joint Commission to report that they felt like they were victims of racism in their healthcare system. It could be in, in promoting, it could be in how they were treated in multiple ways. And, and we really had nowhere to go with it. So now, if, if we say as a part of your accreditation, as a part of a conditional participation in CMS, that you must address these issues, then I think we will continue to move it forward. Yeah, and that does come back to the carrot and the stick, and that the stick in healthcare is is unfortunately what moves things forward. It would be really nice to put some guardrails around these initiatives to keep them in place, because we know too how easily things can go away. This this is the fabric, though, of society. This isn't just a new program. This is including everybody in healthcare. It's not a program. People have been left out and, and feeling right. disenfranchised and it's far too long overdue to be doing making an intentional attempt to make sure everyone feels comfortable. The numbers of black and brown physicians going into medical school I would be really interested to know those numbers. And I'm, I'm sure that that's not something you would know off the top of your head. I know, I know it off the top of my head. Do you? Because they, they've been the same since, since the late 1800s, right? So if I, if I talk specifically uh, around Black African-American physicians in the U.S., it's around 5% of the total number of African-American or Black physicians who practice medicine. That means they're not in some other form of medicine, pharma or research or something else, it's 3%. That was the same number that, that it was in the late 1800s. So that's what I mean by this doesn't, this didn't just happen. And again, I keep going back to, that is how this system is, is, is designed. So as we say in patient safety, quality improvement, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. So if, if the number of black and African-American physicians is the same now as it was in the 1800s, we got a problem. You know, if the number of, if I use another clinical example, African-American maternal mortality, right? It's been at least two times that of white women for over a hundred years. That's what the data tells us. 
What we also know is that the clinical outcomes for black and brown people uh, are better when they have a black or brown clinician or care team. And, and that's a sad statement on healthcare that we have to keep saying that. We know that, that the hospitals and healthcare systems and lower income communities are lower quality. They have fewer resources, less capacity, are, are understaffed, don't have the supplies and equipment that are needed to provide quality care in, in these communities. We know that there are pharmacy deserts and you, they've been mapped out right, right there in Chicago. So those are the structural things right, that, that communities are challenged with. And, and we know, again, from, from just there in Chicago, I live, again, near West Side, right off the blue line. And if you take the blue line from the loop up to where I live, life expectancy drops almost 18 years. And you can count the number of train stops. That's about a 30-minute ride on the blue line from the loop up to Western Avenue. Uh, and, and as you even ride, you can see uh, the structural problems in, in the communities where people live and learn and, and worship and love. There's a, a stark difference. So that's the system that we're talking about. So how do we begin to do that then? And you can look at, again, how, how healthcare system use community reinvestment money. You can look at where they put healthcare facilities, as I said, and how their staff supplied, et cetera, for lower income uh, communities that are black and brown. Yeah. Well, and you, you know, you talk about outcomes and outcomes in general, you know, are, are just so different for simple things like the piece that you posted, um, the JAMA piece that showed racial and ethnic disparities in prostate MRI post-elevated PSA mm -hmm. test. I mean, things like that, concrete things that you can look at and say, well, why is that? You know, the same thing with women's health and, and you know, black women three to four times more likely to die due to childbirth related complications and the colorectal cancer screenings. You know, that, that to me, the screening piece is more of a trust. Don't you think that's more of a trust issue? So, so a big part of it is a trust issue. And, you know, there, there are some studies that maybe it needs to be studied more. But even in my 20 some years of practice, it wasn't in here in Alabama. It wasn't uncommon for, for patients to come in, black patients, and, and say, tell me what I need to do because I trust you, right? <laughs> uh, and, and then I'm, I'm put in that role to bridge the gap between what has been recommended maybe by a subspecialist or a surgeon as opposed to what this person feels like they need. And, and that is, is still an echo, and we live in the shadow of Tuskegee. And, and other, you know, Henrietta Lacks and, and all those episodes that have happened in the past, those still live with people. So that's to see someone that, and says, I, I will trust you because I know that if you tell me I'm not an experiment, then I will believe it. So something is happening in those clinical encounters that we need to, to, to talk about. Uh, people bring their trauma with them. They bring their, their full selves, social, economic, and political. So do caregivers. So do physicians, nurses, and nurse practitioners. For example, right here in Alabama, where I was, when I saw this in the news, I called this good friend of mine, a pediatrician, and I just said, is this true? And it was a, a, a child whose mom uh, had taken, this is a white mom, white child, had taken the child to 23 or called or contacted 23 different pediatricians because the child was, was adolescent and questioning uh, their sexual orientation. And my friend was the one that took the child and, and the family as patients. 23 pediatricians 
they they refuse for religious beliefs and the practice is full or a multitude of reasons. And that is how the system plays out for people. So we got to begin to dig deep into this thing about trust and say, why, why am I going to trust these people that disrespect me, that don't show me empathy, that don't listen to me, that don't spend time with me, that are more concerned about putting stuff in a computer on the electronic health record than sitting and looking at me and engaged with me in this conversation around what matters to me right now. And how can we as healthcare teams serve that person's needs and what matters to them? And, and, and I think that for me, uh, as a former uh, uh, teacher, faculty in medical school, that should be a clinical competency. That, that a medical student, a resident, that an attending physician, that a, a, a physician in private practice can sit with people that don't look like them and partner and come to a right care management decision based on what that person needs and what matters to them and not so much what matters you know, to that clinician. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, we've come to a place where everybody's so litigious and just covering, you talk about, you know, sitting there documenting versus looking at the patient across from them. You know, that's a, that's a big pressure point too. In addition to the social cultural stuff that we're, we're talking about is the main topic here. You know, I, I really, I do want to land on a positive note because I think that is the one, the only thing that we have control of is, cho- is the, what we choose to do given the environment. And I think, you know, given the the roller coaster of the last two years, you know, that everybody's experienced, we got to figure out a way to come together despite the depth of the complexities of everything that we're talking about. And leaders like you who've been doing this a long time and who have, you know, the education, the knowledge, the, you know, lived experience to lead right now, I, I think your voice needs to be heard now more than ever. I always laugh when I when you, we, I remember you putting a couple papers out that didn't get accepted. And then the last three years, everybody wanted the same papers that were just as good three years ago. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me. So the ABIM and IHA initiative to build trust, is that a good place to land on a positive note, do you think? So I, I, I believe it is. And, and I came off of a call with the American Born Internal Medicine Foundation, Daniel Wilson, uh, just before this podcast recording. And we have convened initial group of 14 national leaders in health equity and disparity. And we're hoping that by January, that a document that I will co-author, be lead author on, will be distributed that talks about the role of trust in addressing inequity and racism. So we've convened that first uh, 14 people, and we will convene another group for the phase two to begin to think about how to move this into action. Because the thing behind this is we don't need another white paper. We don't need more um, what's been described by Greta Thornburg as blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So this is this is not about blah, blah, blah. This is about going from strategy to organizing to action. And part of action uh, is to hold people, organizations, institutions accountable. So there will be a, a, a second phase after the initial paper comes out, and then there'll be a third phase, a more of an action phase. So that is the, the plan for this. We've just had incredible uptake among some of the leaders in, in, in all industries around healthcare, payers, providers, other institutions, as you mentioned, IHI is teaming with the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation around this trust issue. 
Uh, more of that will come out even next week at the IHI Forum. Uh, you know, Kata Mate, CEO of IHI, is deeply involved with this. They've teamed with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Massachusetts, and that came out today about that the effort from Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Massachusetts uh, around addressing these issues there. So uh, there's a lot of, of movement that gives me nothing but hope and more optimism than I've had on these topics in over you know over a decade. But that said, we have to continue to fight, push, struggle. And I always go back to the business of medicine where they typically say. You know, if there's no margin, there's no mission that I totally reject. This is what I say about that. If there's no mission, there's no margin. If there's no mission, there's no soul. So we are about saying, here is the vision. And I hope for the last 20 years of my life, part of that for me is making the vision plain, right? And then making sure that people hear that and act on that vision. And make sure that when we act on it, that we're speaking the truth and we're not perpetuating the lies of the past. And, and those of us who are involved with this work begin to understand that it's going to seem slow. It's going to seem tiring. It's going to be frustrating. There will be setbacks. But, you know, <laughs> honestly, as the Old Testament says, wait on it. Wait on it because it's going to come and it's not going to be delayed. And, and I think that's the hope for me that we're in a moment that it, it won't be delayed if we continue to press in and, and push forward. Yeah, I like I like ending on a positive note and on action. And I also like what you told me one time that the kids, your kids and their friends yeah. got it all figured out. So we don't want to wait that long, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we, well, you guys have been working too hard to, to get us to where we are. So yeah. more power to you and, and all the stuff that you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing your brain with us. And It's always a pleasure. Yeah, right on. Okay, thanks, Ron. Thank you so much. 